the land was entitled by right. We could build what we wanted to build. There was no going in front of city council and, you know, being a subject subjective decision. We had to go through a permit pursuit process, which is a lot less risky. And because of that reason, we said, Hey, you know what, we're going to go ahead and do the fast close. Uh, yes, it's ideal to get a, a longer close from the seller, but this is going to allow us to get the land. And uh, we're very glad that we did that. In fact, that buyer that we we're competing about against, as soon as we closed, they came back to us and kind of said, we want to buy it. You know, we, we wish we would have. Welcome to XN State. Where's the greatest opportunity in real estate today? That's what I need to know. We'll hear from industry leaders with boots in the ground and skin in the game. Who's winning? How are they winning? Stick around and we'll find out right here on XN State. Hello and welcome back to XN State. Today we bring Corey Older to the show. Corey is the co-founder and president of Austin-based River City Capital Partners, a real estate development firm focused on urban infill commercial projects. In today's interview, we discuss how Corey got his start in real estate. We discuss current and upcoming projects on the pipeline for River City Capital Partners, and we discuss the ins and outs of opportunity zone investing. Thank you for being back for another episode of XN State. Without further ado, here's today's guest, Corey Older. Corey, thanks for being on the show. Glad we could finally get this on the calendar. Yeah, same here, Jorge. Uh, nice to be with you. How are you today? Doing great. I'm enjoying the, I mean, it's like high 60s, low 70s in, yeah, in September. So enjoying that very much. I don't know how that happened. Two weeks ago, we were in over 100 degrees and now low 60s. Yeah, I'm uh, enjoying it. I was able to get a little jog around the trail in and uh, without as much heat as normal. Yeah, we'll see what happens this winter. If it, <laughs> I get the feeling it'll be a cold one. Might be, might be. So Corey, let's jump right into it. I'd love to sure. hear about how you got started in, in real estate development and what your journey has been like from when you got started into what you're doing now with River City Capital Partners. Yeah, I guess probably easiest to start just when I got interested in real estate. So from Arizona and I uh, graduated from University of Arizona and upon graduating, I guess it was uh, 2002, uh, it was great time to be buying real estate in, in Phoenix. And so uh, bought a first condo there and my background was accounting. So I was working for a big four accounting firm. That was kind of my entrance into real estate. And it was a, it was a fun one because in Phoenix, it was one of the most volatile markets in, in that period of time. It was like, after I bought two years later, it had doubled in price. And then two years after that, it was less worth less than what I bought it for. So wow. it was a very interesting period of time. But it still got me interested in real estate. Then I uh, moved to Austin in 2005, been here for 15 years and uh, was still working for Deloitte, but then uh, eventually started working for Keller Williams. Keller Williams is based here in Austin mm -hmm. and uh, got to work uh, at their headquarters and had half a dozen different jobs there, including working in the commercial real estate department working in the county department and uh, several others and had the privilege of working with executives and, and company ownership on a few special projects, which was really great to get exposure to them. And, and it was getting me closer and closer to real estate. And then uh, I guess about six years ago, a uh, friend who was my neighbor at the time, Peter, he and I started talking more about real estate. He's been doing construction and development for 
over 20 years in, in Austin. My background was mostly at that time finance and just the accumulation of, you know, small quantity of rental properties I had accumulated mm-hmm. at that time. And one of them in particular, I thought was ripe for redevelopment. And I still do. It's, the headline is, and we never quite figured out how to redevelop that one, but um, started talking to Peter and said, hey, help, help me figure out how to redevelop this. I think it's a prime candidate. And uh, we couldn't figure out how to how to get it done. It had some hair on it that I still haven't quite solved, but it's great property. But uh, we were having fun working together. We said, well, let's just go find another deal. This one doesn't work, but let's go find some land. And so we started buying land in uh, urban infill, just you know, high-priced areas in, in Austin. And that was kind of our model, just get premium land. And uh, we, were, we were always pretty creative. And so we, we won a lot of land by working with the sellers to just figure out what they wanted. Do they want their money fast and we're willing to take a discount? Or some of them, there's quite a few deals where they said, hey, we, just, we have this price in our mind and we absolutely have to have it. But, um, you know, we don't care quite when we got our, when we get our money. So we actually turned them into essentially partners in the development. And so, yeah, that's how we, you know, before we knew it, we kind of had a company and left Keller Williams, I guess, about four years ago. And uh, we were, have since wound down our residential and, and really just focused on commercial development. I guess, yeah, four years ago, we started purchasing land on East Riverside on the east side of Austin. We viewed it as a growing corridor and really felt like um, commercial development was um, more interesting to us for various reasons. Nothing against residential, but uh, it was really exciting to us. And so, um, yeah, that's what we're doing now. We've had one piece of land on Riverside that we've flipped and then another one we're developing and some other land in North Austin that we're developing. So. Maybe a longer answer than you want, but there you go. That's how I got into it. No, that, that was a very clear path that seems to me. You start in real estate by, like a lot of people starting out, when they figure out that there's something there that they want to pursue when they make a first purchase and something there like, clicks in their mind. They're like, okay, I like this. I want more of it. Yeah. And then you, you were in Keller Williams. Were you doing brokerage there? No, I was, um, I am licensed, but uh, I was always at their headquarters with different jobs. I was a salaried employee there and had different roles. So yeah, I, I, while I accumulated my license along the way, it was fun because I was, I was around real estate. Yeah. And actually just to add to your point, because I, th- I think it's a really good one. That first property, that first rental property we ever bought, the one that I went to Peter that said, hey, let's, let's try to redevelop it. It was really my real entrance into real estate. I mean, mm-hmm. other than thinking it was cool, it was like the first real rental property. At the time, shortly after we purchased it, we didn't know what we were doing. We figured out that we had way overpaid. I mean, we really did, like significantly wow. overpaid on the property. And um, wow, that's very it's been, interesting. Yeah, I feel like everyone is uh, sometimes with their first real estate deal, they're so careful. They don't want to make a wrong move. And uh, I remember saying to my brother who part purchased that with me uh, and some other and another family member, you know, I, I know this thing's going to cash flow. There's a chance we might be overpaying a little bit, but it's just it's going to get us in the game. And at the time, I didn't know if that was the right call. But in hindsight, it really was like, I, I even think though it was not a good deal. Well, it was a good deal. It just wasn't as good as I think we could have found. I think we could have found a better deal in hindsight at that time. I think we I just think we overpaid a little bit. We found that out too late in the game, and you know we didn't know what we were doing. 
But uh, but you're so grateful that you purchased it, yeah. Totally, because it led to what you're doing now. Yeah, my lesson learned there was sometimes you just got to get in the game, and we didn't like purposely overpay. We just we were doing the best we could, and we weren't looking at some correct data. But by doing that, it made us realize, you know, what the mistakes we had made, and uh, it's still a great deal. It's one of my favorite properties now. It's just at the time we purchased, we overpaid. And, and you know, in hindsight, I wouldn't change a thing. It was it was great, and led to and led to my current what I'm doing now because yeah. it was the the project that I was trying to redevelop. So this is a property that you bought in Austin, but not your first property that you said you purchased in, in Arizona, right? No, the first property I purchased in Phoenix was just a that was a a residence that I was occupied that I did later rent. But this was the first property where I'm like, hey, this it was a fourplex, it is a fourplex, still own it, and uh, said, hey, we are going to buy this for the fur- full sole purpose of, you know, investment purposes and making money and putting a group together, putting capital together. Yeah. So I don't know. For me, I'm not encouraging people to overpay for for real estate, but sometimes you just got to jump. But you're encouraging them to jump. Exactly. Yeah. As, as you did in, in your case. And how long ago was this purchase, the one in Austin? That, oh man, that one, uh, it was right when I moved here. It's, it's probably 15 years old. And okay. uh, I mean, that's a funny thing. While I overpaid, it has nearly doubled in, in not quite doubled, but it's up significantly and we've done very well on it, even when you count in the probably 50k well, overpriced. Yeah. Yeah. It's well, Austin's been a, a good market to make mistakes in. If you're going to yeah, make mistakes, yeah. make them in Austin. <laughs> That's another one. If you're going to overpay, make sure you're in a growing market. <laughs> yeah. But even then, it's been a since then, it's been a, a great journey from then to what you're doing now. Because right now, I mean, you're doing large deals and pure ground up development yeah it's been a really fun journey and i've learned a lot and we keep getting more sophisticated and surrounding ourselves with just better and better professionals and and, and team members and uh yeah it's been really fun our riverside project that'll break ground knock on wood here and you know probably 60 to 90 days we're very close projects fully capitalized and just finishing up a few things that one will, uh, it was actually originally mixed use and I haven't really publicly shared this, but we had to, due to COVID, we got rid of the commercial component and they're now doing a phased multifamily. So that'll be uh, first phase is 381 units and second phase will be 137. So that'll be a, a 518 unit two phase multifamily project. And then our North Austin one is, uh, it's actually a little bigger, but in also two phases, it's uh, two phases of about 300 units each. Coincidentally, they're, they're both in opportunity zones. My background's a, a accounting. And so um, we bought the first one on Riverside prior to the opportunity zone legislation being passed. But once it was, we learned a lot about the program and just being my financial background gravitated to that pretty quickly. And so we've gotten very deep in opportunity zones and our, in our, the other deal in North Austin is, is now a, is an opportunity zone as well. Yeah. So it seems to me that land is what seems to be like the, the bottleneck for a lot of developers into building more it projects. Is. So you have two great projects and that you will be, will be building in the, in the near future. The Riverside one, that's a little bit closer uh, yeah. in terms of when it's going to break ground and, that but that having been able to secure that property itself i mean that in itself would have it would lead to a good project right so a lot of what makes the project good is in the location that you've been able to secure how do you yeah. secure 
those kinds of properties? Yeah, it's a great question. I'll, I'll say two things. One, Peter, my, my business partner, he's just, his superpower is the guy just goes for a drive and comes back with a deal. Uh, he's, he's really good at identifying land that is in the path of development and is set up in a way that will be an efficient development. So, I mean, a, a lot of, a lot of it, I got, I just give credit to him. And then I think the second piece is, and this is consistent with what I was saying when we were doing residential, we are creative. And for instance, our Riverside deal, I remember we were competing against another very large firm at the time we bought that land. And the price was fine. Both parties were willing to pay the same price. They wanted to wait. They They wanted to wait till every you know, till their site plan was completely done, which we like to do, but we just, uh, this particular seller, we knew to get this land, we had to be willing to close on it before we had all the permits done. And we looked at the deal and uh, it was entitled. I think it's important when you're talking about development, there's a difference between entitlement and uh, permit pursuit, you know, entitlement, the way we, you know, I think most define it is the land was entitled by right. We could build what we wanted to build. There was no going in front of city council and, you know, being a subject subjective decision, we had to go through a permit pursuit process, which is a lot less risky. And because of that reason, we said, Hey, you know what, we're going to go ahead and do the fast close. Uh, yes, it's ideal to get a, a longer close from the seller, but this is going to allow us to get the land. And uh, we're very glad that we did that. In fact, that buyer that we we're competing about against as soon as we closed, they came back to us and kind of said, we want to buy it. You know, we, we wish we would have. Mm-hmm. And so on that one, it's that. And then on our North Austin one, the land was way larger than you would normally, you know, take down for a multifamily. It's, it's about 70 acres, but we knew the price was good and the deal worked and opportunity zone and we love the location. And so we took down all 70 acres at a very fair price and said, Hey, we're just going to sell off the pieces we're not using to other users which will help our land basis and get us the land that we want. And so a lot of, I think of our competitors, you know, they have just a, a, Hey, we're looking for this exact deal. We want sellers that are going to let us get through the full permit process. We want land that's, you know, perfectly sized that has everything ready. And those are great, but they also have a ton of competition and, Mm -hmm. you know, you end up having to pay a real, really high price for those. But having a little bit of flexibility and willing to take down land that has maybe a little bit of hair on it, either because the seller wants to close faster than you want, or it's larger than you want, or or there's something that has to be fixed, has allowed us to get into some land that we otherwise wouldn't have had. Yeah, that's a great point on being creative and also not, not just being creative for the sake of being creative, but actually understanding what it is that a particular seller values the most because between one seller or another they can have very different goals in mind and if you're creative towards finding or towards solving whatever it is that that they're looking for then yeah that's that's a great point that you're making yeah i could agree more with what you just said and and it always shocks me like you know you kind of assume what the seller wants Mm -hmm, exactly Uh, but you really got to ask the question dig in and even the answer you get sometimes doesn't reveal the whole truth because they don't maybe know themselves but you really got to push and go, oh, this is what they want. And, yeah. uh, and try to, uh, how can we accommodate that? Rather than fight against it, how can we accommodate it? Do you deal with, sometimes deal with sellers directly or is it always through brokers? 
we've done both. You know, I am a, I am an agent, so sometimes we represent ourselves, but we view land brokers as a huge asset. And so we, we've taken down deals uh, both direct and through brokerage. We're very happy to pay a, a broker fee, especially, I mean, these commercial real estate brokers, I think they don't get enough credit because, I mean, they, they work on deals for a really, really long time. And, you know, a lot of them don't close. So, yeah, we, we're happy to pay commissions, especially when an, when an agent's brought a deal to the table. And from the seller's side, they typically have brokers representing them as well, rather than dealing with the seller directly? Of the deals we've closed, yeah, they've all... I'm talking about deals we've recently closed. We've had sellers represent themselves, but for the most part, they've all had had brokers. I mean, commercial real estate is still, you know, it's not as transparent a market as residential. And so, you know, those brokers are really key if you're selling a property to get the the word out properly. Um, you know, not every they don't necessarily list everything on LoopNet or CoStar. You know, so, sometimes it's the ones that have relationships that get to see the deals first. And so it's an, an important piece. Uh, yeah, I yeah. think that's why sellers use brokers. Yeah. So you mentioned, Corey, that those two projects coincidentally happen to be in opportunity zones. Yeah. Is that 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 just happened to be the case? You weren't consciously pursuing opportunities and opportunity zones. The first one, total coincidence. Um, yeah, because you had already bought the property yeah. before. It, it we was had already bought the property. We just loved what was going on in Riverside. Oracle was coming, and yeah, I, re- I remember the day actually. I'd never even heard of opportunity zones, and then our our lead investor, who's um. He's a high profile guy, very busy. I don't hear from him a lot. I mean, I keep him informed of what's going on, but um, it, it's unusual to hear from him. And one morning I get like two voicemails, three emails. I'm like, what is going on? And um, he's like, you know, call me right away. And he's like, look at the census track. Are you in it? And we were, we were the border. The border of the mm-hmm. census track is Riverside and Metopolis, which is, or is Metopolis. And that's the border of the, our particular property. And he said, you're, you know, you're in the opportunity zone. I'm like, what does that mean? <laughs> and uh, I guess that was June of 2018. And he had been tracking luckily and uh, tipped our hat. And then we very quickly, soon thereafter, before opportunity zones were kind of all the rave. I mean, it was, it was starting to be well known. Uh, we picked up the second property. So second property, we, we knew we were buying an opportunity zone. I, I know that sort of by default or naturally, you've have gotten to know a lot about opportunity zones. So I'd like yeah. uh, to take advantage of, of this opportunity because I don't think it's something that we've died into in the podcast before. Can you give us an overview of what an opportunity sure. zone is? Sure. Yeah. I've become an expert by necessity, <laughs> but I've, I've enjoyed it. It's a really interesting program. So easiest way to explain it is really through an example. So, Jorge, let's say that you bought Tesla stock, you know, several years ago for a million dollars and uh, great news today, it's worth 2 million. If you sold that stock today, you'd have a million dollar gain, a capital gain. And uh, yeah, it's, it was a couple years ago, so it's long-term capital gain. And so that would mean if you're, you know, if you're selling two million, you'd be in the highest tax bracket. You would owe twenty-three percent in tax come April twenty twenty-one. So you know, of your million dollars, you would owe two hundred and thirty thousand dollars in capital gains tax, 
and then you would retain uh, 770. So that's the normal course of things. If you decide to instead of just pocketing your gain, you decide to take your your million dollar gain, not the whole thing, but just the gain portion, and invest it into a real estate project or a business. Doesn't have to be real estate that meets certain requirements and is geographically located in certain designated census tracts called opportunity zones. You get three benefits. The first benefit in in the projects we can talk about in a second. They have to meet some criteria. But the pro- let's say you've checked all those boxes. It's it's an active business. First benefit is your $230,000 in tax that you would owe. You don't have to pay that till it's not technically due till 12-31-2026, which really means you wouldn't have to pay it till April 2027. So you got a, a six-year deferral. You got to keep your $230,000. You still got to pay it, but you don't have to pay it till 20, April 2027. The second thing that happens, uh, assuming you hold this opportunity zone investment for a long time, is uh, you get a 10% discount. So instead of $230,000, you'd owe $207,000. You get a 10% discount on on your taxes owed. And then the third benefit, if you hold for 10 years, is um, let's say that million-dollar investment that you made, let's just say it's our project. Let's say that in 10 years, it's quadrupled and it is worth your million dollars is now worth four million. That you'd have a, and we sold it, that $3 million in capital would be a capital gain. It would not be taxed at all. I'm brushing over some details, but in general, Mm -hmm. you can assume that that 3 million is not going to be taxed at all. And so that's the third, third benefit. And the reason for that is you get to basically mark your basis up to market value. So whatever your sales price is, you get to, to mark it up. So in a sense, if, if you're if you're familiar with this stuff, uh, you know when you sell an asset, you, you even if you've been depreciating it, you have recapture tax and, and capital gains. This uh, Because you get to mark your basis all the way up to market value, it, it essentially eliminates both of those. And so you have a, a, a tax-free investment. Wow. So would you say that of those three benefits, the third one that you mentioned is the main one? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that though absolutely like the most valuable one is that third one because if you just look at the dollars and cents, right? Like, you know, the first one you you save 200, you got to defer 230,000, you save $23,000 in in tax, that's all great. But the third benefit, it got you out of let's see, if you had a 3 million capital gain, 23%, it saved you $650,000 in tax. So, it's a huge benefit. Now, I will say just the de- don't underrate that deferral though. When you plug it in, depending on the timing that you put in, that deferral of the two hundred and thirty thousand dollars and that ten percent discount, that if you plug that in and you you treat that like a cash flow stream, that juices the IRR for the investor by like two to three points, depending on some various assumptions. So you know that's nothing to you know nothing to sneeze sure. at. But the, the big sure. one is certainly the ten year hold. Okay. And are there any significant criteria that a project, for example, a gra- that a ground-up development has to fit under to yeah. qualify? Yeah, it is. I mean, besides being in the census tract, the, the main thing is it has to be an active trader business. So you can't just go buy a 100-unit existing multifamily property in an opportunity zone and say, great, I get all these benefits. 
you have to be actively and, and substantially, in that case, you'd have to substantially improve it or make a, an improvement to the land. So you'd have to, you know, double, essentially double the size of that apartment. Or if you're ground up development, you have to maintain a certain ratio, like your land can only be a certain percentage of your total cost. It, it's, I'd summarize it by saying the spirit of the law is to encourage job growth and real estate creation and um, buy hold cat. You know, there might be some caveats. You might find a loophole where you can do some type of buy hold strategy, but certainly not the intent of the law. The intent is to be actively developing your land, actively growing your business, starting a new business in an opportunity zone, create jobs. That's really the spirit of the law. And so, yeah, there's some loopholes where you can maybe not do that, but um, we're trying our best to act within the spirit of it. Sure, sure. Do you still see plenty of opportunity in pursuing deals and opportunity zones? Or do you feel that now it's gotten a lot more popular that now the the properties in opportunity zones are, are in yeah. a way already pricing that in those benefits? That's a great question. There's a funny story. There's a right after the opportunity zone legislation passed, there was this piece of land that we had been eyeing um, in, in East Austin. And um, it was in opportunity zone. It had been sale for a long time. The, the seller was not very responsive. And we said, hey, we got we to gotta go pick this up. No one's really tracking. And so we went back and made, you know, upped our offer. And the agent, I remember saying, he goes, you know, we don't know what's going on, but we've gotten like, a, we had no activity. We've had like half a dozen offers in the last week. And <laughs> so we finally told them, we're like, well, here's what's going on. And uh, yeah, fast forward, that land got priced crazy high. Uh, wow. the deal didn't really even make sense. So yeah, there are still opportunity zone deals available. I think the easy ones are the price that they're going for is so high that I have a hard time making them pencil. Even taking into account the benefits. In other words, it probably doesn't make sense to develop in an opportunity zone if you're not going to take advantage of the capital capital gains opportunity there because you're going to be paying a premium for the land. Yeah, I mean, it depends, obviously. Like there's some opportunities in land that's very rural, not in the path of development. And, you know, I don't think those are really being impacted that much. But the ones that are in highly sought after areas that are very much in the path of development that don't have any hair on them, they've been bid up to, yes, the buyers are absolutely taking the opportunity zone benefits into their pricing and uh, relying on that. And in some circumstances I've seen, we've walked away We've just done the math and we're going, I, we don't, even with these benefits, we don't get it. There's something we're not getting, you know, people know something we don't. Uh, Yes. The easy ones I think have been priced up very significantly. You know, some of those developers are really smart. So (laughs) they may, they'll they'll probably figure it out. But uh, some of the other deals, you know, they're still out there. You just got to be a little creative. You got to maybe be willing to take down more land than you really want. But they're in Austin. It's, um, you know, the quantity of them is certainly viable deals are is declining. I mean, one, one just side note is opportunity zones, the benefits are really great, but it's, um, it's a nudge, right? It's not like the benefits are so good that it makes sense to build class A development in, you know, in, in a rural town with no demand. Like it, it's not like that, which is a good thing, right? Like that'd be really scary if we were seeing all these development in places where there weren't the economic drivers to really support the asset that's being created. Opportunity zones are a nudge. 
they, they, I think, speed up the velocity of development in certain areas. And they should be viewed as gravy, not the whole thing. And yeah, it, you know, it, you can pay a little bit more, but you can't go crazy. That's a great way to, to summarize what a, an opportunity zone does to a project. So Corey, you've grown as a company, you're doing larger and larger deals. How has your company evolved in the, in the last few years? Is it still pretty much you and Peter in the company? Yeah, we've stayed really small, pretty, and I think we'll continue. We will, we are going to add some people and, you know, I think even maybe in, you know, within this next year, add some people on the development side. There, there's really just a, a few of us right now because we tend to partner. We do have gaps. For instance, we don't have, um, Peter's got heavy construction experience. You know, we don't have the capacity to be on site watching our general contractor with the level of oversight that's really required. And so we partnered with a great group in this on the Riverside deal. It's um, a group called Matador and they're great. And, uh, you know, they're going to be our, our eyes and ears on that particular job. But they're also just a great example of how we've grown is when we have a void, you know, decide, hey, does, does this make sense to take on a hire or do we partner? And, you know, hiring is typically less expensive, but partnering, we tend to pay more, but also in a lot of cases, I, I believe, get um, better results and uh, more experience. We're not having to, you know, that we're hiring is tends to already be very well trained and know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there, there's none of that. And so we that's how we've grown, you know, right or wrong. It's just how we've, we've done it. I do think we'll start bringing some more staff inside, but we, you know, we, we work in, in place. Sometimes we have co-developers. Sometimes we have construction management groups. We are trying to be very cognizant of, hey, is this a, in the life cycle of our business? Does it make sense to hire someone right now? Or does it make sense to partner? And yeah, we pay more, but it has benefits too. So, mm-hmm. Certainly. Yeah. You fill those gaps on an as needed basis by outsourcing that specific gap. And what you get there is that you're able to fill that gap with very specific expertise for that need. Exactly. And you have no ongoing overhead, right? They're, they're assigned to do a certain task. When it's done, it's done. Unlike with an employee, especially with, you know, in development where you're business has lots of peaks and valleys as far as workload, you know, you don't have the burden of employees during those, you know, those periods where there's, you know, less work. So yeah, we, I think it's, um, for us, we, we, well, we do, we're getting a place where we need to add some staff, but, um, yeah, the way you summarized it is perfect. Yeah. And there's different models. And as you said, they both have, or not just both, I'm sure there's more than two and they all have different pros and cons, but the one that you follow, I think it's a fun one in the sense that you're the one doing a lot. I mean, you're essentially having the pure role of a developer where you're having to to do it all, everything, essentially from finding the opportunity, driving the area, talking to brokers, talking to banks, talking to investors, doing the underwriting, yeah. and basically everything. Yeah, it's been fun. I mean, we get to, um, yeah, I was just actually telling my dad, like one one thing that I I just love about what I do is just really every day is different. There is, is not monotonous in in any way. And, you know, someone once told me development is hour by hour (laughs) and uh, meaning it it just, a deal can come together and fall apart within an hour. And it's a very true statement. And 
you're going to encounter a lot of issues and being able to, um, you know, just stay calm and, and think it through and be creative is key. And the benefit is with all those different obstacles that are presented, it's not monotonous. There's always something different and we got to wear a lot of different hats. And yeah, we, we bring in other parties where it's a, if it's something that we either don't have capacity or don't have the experience needed to solve. Yeah. Is your that also in real estate and development? No, no, he's uh, in the medical field. So yeah, I don't, I don't come from, uh, that's been interesting uh, too. I don't, I don't have any, neither of my parents were entrepreneurs, but I've always kind of just had that in me from a very young age, just always wanted to start my own business. So uh, it, it's fun, that, but they follow along closely and like to hear the stories. And so it's kind of fun to tell the tales yeah. about ups and downs and uh, they're, they're great listeners. Yeah. I'm sure they're excited about what seeing you build what you've built and the journey that you've taken. Yeah. Corey, are you, are you ready for our fire round? Yeah, let's do it. What's the book that has had the most profound impact on your life? That is a good question. There's a bunch that come to mind. I mean, one, I don't know why it pops up, but there's a book called Mastery. There's actually two books called Mastery. This is the, the short one. I forgot the author's name. That one is idea. by Robert Greene. Is that correct? Yeah, I think it's the other one. Okay. Um, it's a short, short yeah, book. Yeah, because the, the one by Robert Greene is not short. Yeah, I know. It's not that one. And I, it's one of those ones where I, I, you can't find it in bookstores. Not that anyone goes to a bookstore these days. Uh, you have to find it on Amazon. That one's really good. Uh, Man's Search for Meaning. That is uh, one of my favorites as well. Compound Effect and Slight Edge. Mm. Lo- love both of those books. What was the second one? Slight Edge. Slight Edge. Yeah, they're they're actually kind of the same subjects. I'd say Slight Edge is the... Investment? The are they business and then investment? No, they're both... Um, you know, you've heard the penny, the doubling of the penny, you know, if taking whatever, a million dollars a day or, or a penny a day doubled, which should you do? And, you know, the penny is the, the answer. Uh, both of those books are on that, that premise of like the benefits in life of compounding your interests. And, um, you know, and I, I think, uh, yeah, so the, okay. I know it's lightning round, so I'll, I'll no. shut up. <laughs> yeah, those, are, those are a few of my favorite. I'm sure when we hang up, I'll think of a bunch of other ones. Thanks for those recommendations. Next question. What's the single most important skill to have as a real estate developer? A cool head. A cool head. Got to be calm. Yeah. Got to be calm and creative. Mm-hmm. What's a real estate trend that you're paying attention to? I think the small, I mean, I guess you'd call them micro units is super interesting. You think they're still as interesting post pandemic? Because I've heard both sides, both versions. I, I do. I mean, I think the argument against it is density, but I don't know if that what you've heard, but you know, either way, you've got the same quantity of people in a building. But I think the, the idea of, I think our, this generation that's, you know, renting in our city they, a lot of them would rather be in a great location, easily accessible to amenities that, you know, the city is their amenity and they're willing to give up square footage to do that. And I, I get that appeal. Yeah. Uh, I don't think that's going to change because of COVID. Uh, everyone's still going to want to be, have quick access to uh, the lake and the park and the trail and downtown. And I don't think COVID makes that go away. Yep, I agree. What's a parting piece of advice that you have for our audience? Corey? 
I guess my big one would just being uh, staying in a growth mindset. You know, it's referenced a lot of books too, um, and always be learning. I love that. You know, you started this podcast. I think when we first connected, you said, you know, part of this was just your own journey of constantly growing and learning, and uh, that's kind of how I try to live my life. And I, I think it's uh, for real estate. It's very true. Just to always be growing, expanding, and, and learning, and listening to others, and things tend to work out. Yeah, I think that's fantastic advice, Corey. Thank you for that. And thank you for being on the show and congratulations on what you're building and on, from what you have going on at River City Capital Partners. And I look forward to continuing our conversation later. And again, thank you very much for being on here today. It's been a yeah, pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having me. I loved it. Have a great one. You too, Corey. Thanks. Bye.